0: Welcome to another edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live right here on Giants.com. Meadow Schmelk, you, 201 4513 We'll take your calls in the second half of today's program because we're doing a lot of draft stuff in the first half, and it's going to be a big quarterback-heavy show. We're going to talk about prospects from three schools, West Virginia, Will Greer, Mizzou, Drew Locke, Duke, Daniel Jones. And we'll start out in West Virginia lands, and for that we're going to talk to Jed Drenning, who's from the Mountaineer Sports Network. He's their sideline reporter, and he joins us to talk West Virginia prospects. Jed, you got John Schmunk and Lance Meadow in East Rutherford, New Jersey. Good morning. How are you?
1: Not too bad. How are you guys doing? We're doing, we're well.
0: doing fantastic. Uh, let's start with Will Greer. I saw him at the Combine. I saw him at the Senior Bowl. I was at both events. Uh, really seems to be somebody that can get rid of the ball quick and is fairly accurate, especially in the short and intermediate areas.
1: Uh, There's no doubt about it. Son of a coach, and he plays like it. Uh, A lot of family fame surrounding that family. He's had to handle that for a number of years. But he was a model of consistency at West Virginia. When you look at what Will did, played and finished 21 games, and in 19 of those games threw for over 300 yards. But he's a kid who's really oozing with the it factor. He won the locker room over before he ever took a snap during his transfer sit-out year. Uh, The team really was picking up what he was putting down. They responded to him. Uh, When you look at him as a thrower, what a tremendous sense of anticipation. Uh, He's a master of all the angles of the passing game. sees the field really well. And one of the things about him, you talked about those intermediate throws. He's very accurate on those throws. But in addition to that, he's a more nimble kid than a lot of people give him credit for. He has the ability to extend some plays. He might even sneak in a third down conversion with his feet now and then for you to get those chains moving. But... Uh, Also an incredibly tough kid, Uh, very physically tough kid. I remember when he broke his finger against Texas, which uh, shortened his season two years ago, I was standing on the sidelines when he came off and the training staff was looking at him. And just the way that he endured that uh, just spoke to me about what a tough kid he was. But what's interesting to me, he's in some respects being called by some uh, a rich man's case Keenum. And uh, they were both guys that played for Dana Holgerson, both guys that played for Dana Holgerson in the air raid even. Their skill sets are somewhat similar. Uh, and if he's a rich man's Case Keenum, what's interesting to look at is Case Keenum's best season as a pro, and it's not even close, came in 2017 in Minnesota Yep, when he got to the Vikings, that yep. 13-3 record. Well, as you guys know, the O.C. in Minnesota – was guess who, Pat Shermer, the head coach of the Giants. So I don't know if that's something as uh, Coach Shermer watches tape that he's looking at or thinking about, but that's an interesting connection as well.
2: Well, Jed, I I think what's also interesting is West Virginia's offensive prowess. I mean, even under Jake Spavadal, who now has moved on to become a head coach over the last few years, they certainly have put up some impressive numbers. When you evaluate Will Greer, putting his skill set aside, How do you separate is he a product of the system, Jed, versus he's a product of actually what he brings to the table?
1: Well, that's a fair question. And when you look at the history of Air Raid quarterbacks trying to see how their their game translates to the league, okay? There was a time not long ago when you'd think of names like Tim Couch, who came out of Kentucky and and was a, a failure for the Browns coming out of a Hal Mummy air raid system. Uh, I don't think you could regard him as a success. You had Brandon Whedon coming out of Oklahoma State, who played for Dana. Uh, didn't have a lot of success in the league as a first-round pick. Johnny Mantel, RG3. Those are the names you used to associate with this style of system. But that's kind of – that narrative's changed in the last few years. Yep. More recently, you think, obviously, of the Baker Mayfields, the Patrick Mahomes, even the Jared Goffs, who played for Sonny Dykes at Cal. So I, I think when you look at the, the system at large – and what it can produce, there's always going to be that complicated issue of trying to distinguish the player and the signal caller and the trigger man from the weapons around him. And the truth of the matter is, the game has evolved in the last handful of years in particular to meet the college game a little more when the guys in the NFL are playing pitch and catch. When you look at some of the things that are happening in the NFL, some of the air raid staples, the concepts like the four verts the mesh package when you look at teams like the chiefs with andy Reid, or josh mcdaniel with the patriots or even doug peterson with the eagles doug peterson used the daylights out of the mesh package to help beat the patriots in the super bowl a couple years ago yep. matt nagy with the bears is using some of this some of that's now being introduced and becoming a little more mainstream in the league to help players like the Will Greer's of the of the world along. And I think that's why that transition has been a little more successful lately for those types of guys with those talents around them. Can you get a little
0: more into, Jed, what you talked about earlier, Will, Gre- Will Greer handling fame with the family? Because obviously I think that can affect a player's ability to kind of deal with a lot of the new pressures that come with the NFL, some of the stuff that he, that he dealt with growing up in the family that he did.
1: And not just NFL. That's a great question too because you're talking about the New York market, yep. right? So that's a different animal in its own right. But uh, obviously what's happened is Will is the least famous guy in that family. He has a couple of brothers who are social media stars, if there is such a thing. So uh, you're talking about Hollywood has been in and around that family for a long time now. And that's something that's just kind of uh, matter of fact. Uh, for the Greer family and something that for the last handful of years Willis had to get accustomed to, had to get used to. I remember there's a story that when he was named National High School Player of the Year he went to New York City to accept the award and after accepting the award, they walked back out on the street, and there was a crowd swarming, and they thought, well, obviously, people want Will's autograph. He just won National High School Player of the Year. Well, it wasn't his autograph. It was his brother's <laughs> autograph. So it's just the, wor- it's kind of the world in which he resides, the, the soup in which he swims, and-, and he's handled it all very, very well. But he's-, he's a mature guy. He's a family guy. He's ahead of the curve in that respect. I mean, there was football, there was class, and there was his family. And those were really the only three things that occupied him during his couple years in Morgantown. And and uh, he handled pressure very well, I think, in part as a result of that. I mean, when you look back to that Texas game, you saw that maturity really come through. 100,000 people, DKR Stadium in Austin. West Virginia gets the football back with 218 to go in the game. Their own 25-yard line down seven. Cool as a cucumber. He drives him right down the field, has a 33-yard strike. To, to uh, potentially tie the game, but instead we went for two and then we'll ran it in with several options on that play. But just under duress, under pressure, his maturity really showed through and it showed the possibilities of what type of player he can be.
2: We're talking with Jed Drenning, Mountaineer Sports Network sideline reporter, as we are discussing the West Virginia prospects. And Will Greer had two targets in the receiving core, Jed, in Gary Jennings and David Sills, two guys that we saw in terms of their prowess at the Senior Bowl. If you could sort of dissect the two of them, it seems as if Jennings is more of the possession receiver. Sills has a little bit more size. But where do you see their upside at the next level?
1: Well, let's start with Gary. Uh, he really served himself well at the Combine and Indy. He yeah, ran a couple 4-4s. I think people were impressed by that. they appreciate that part of his game. He has incredible versatility. He can play wherever you want him to in the slot or on the outside. He's been asked to do a little of all of it. Incredibly strong hands, very strong hands. And when you look what he was asked to do a year ago versus two years ago, his role in the offense and in the passing game really changed. Two years ago, he had 97 catches. A lot of those were tough yardage catches in the pit, in the briar patch, in traffic. But he only had one touchdown. Last year, after Karan White's graduation, Gary was asked to push vertically a little more and become more of that vertical threat to complement David Sills on the other side. And he responded well to that with 13 touchdowns and became a playmaker for us this year, or last year, I should say. So that's the type of player you're going to get with Gary. Great kid. Very disciplined kid, very physical kid, hard-nosed kid, but strong, strong hands, and that's what you're getting with him. When you look at David, I still think he's, he's a touch unpolished. Again, remember, he's only been a, a wideout for a handful of years now. Yeah. He's a converted quarterback. That was a big national story. I was offered as a seventh grader by Lane Kiffin at USC. He came to West Virginia as a quarterback, and what ended up happening was he was on the scout team taking reps at wideout, and they couldn't cover him. And I remember his first game playing wideout was back in 2015 at Baylor. And during pregame, Dana was telling me on the field, he's like, I'm telling you, Jed, he said, he's the best wideout we got on our team right now. He had a touchdown in that game, and he only improved as the year went on. Had, hey, he, matter of fact, he caught the game winner in the Cactus Bowl against Arizona State for us. But he wanted to give one more run of playing quarterback, so he went to JC Circuit. Didn't have a lot of offers after that one season at the junior college level. And Dana said, you always got a home here. So at that point, he came back. He fully embraced the notion of becoming a receiver and really poured himself into it. He's self-made in that sense. I think the staff, in particular Tyron Carrier, who was the wideouts coach at the time for West Virginia, did a great job of working with him. He became a technician and that's the last thing you would expect about the guy, a guy who comes to that position in the 11th hour. He was such a weapon in the red zone. You're talking about a kid who 33 touchdown grabs over the course of the last couple of years, but the impressive thing, 21 of those 33 came in the red zone. His footwork has become such a strength of his game, and I would say a lot of people say he might be a Z, a flanker type at the NFL. He might, in fact, be a split or an X. Where you're going to draw that single coverage, you're going to face press coverage. He is enough of a technician to get off, get a release, find a way to push vertical, and use that size, that frame, and that leaping ability. So he's a prospect that has a tremendous amount of upside, and I don't think we've fully seen what he can accomplish with a few more years of good coaching.
0: Yanni Kajust, he's a fascinating player to me, Jed. He didn't play a lot of high school football, he has all the athletic traits you want to have in an offensive tackle. But from the little I saw of him on tape and I watched a couple of games, still really, really raw. Uh, Do you still think he has uh, his best football ahead of him if he gets into the right coaching situation in the NFL?
1: I do think he has his best football ahead of him. See, this is where, from the outside looking in, it might start to get interesting for you guys. Of course, you have 12 picks, more than anybody in the NFL. What you did in the offseason to turn what seemed to be a liability with the Giants, that offensive line, into what appears to now be a strength bringing in Kevin Zeitler, Nate Soder. I mean, you've really shored things up, but maybe there's still somewhat of a liability at right tackle spot. So the question becomes, does a guy like Yodney translate from left tackle to right tackle? I think he could do that in the NFL. Uh, What's interesting about him, a few years back as a sophomore, he was a day-one starter against Missouri, and he was lined up against an edge rusher for Missouri who was a first-round pick, but the 13th play of the game, That's when he tore his ACL, so we didn't Mm -hmm. get to see that matchup. So he had to spend that season recovering from that injury, came back in full force the following year, and has played great football for us ever since. He does the small stuff incredibly well. He's a finisher. He'll run through blocks. Even if he chops somebody, he'll finish the role. He's a true mauler at the point of attack. He's, he's also great in space. In other words, when he's asked to climb to the second level in the screen game or even in the run game, he'll target a second defender, be it a safety, be it a corner, whichever direction the play might take him. Uh, he's also a scrapper. Sometimes he might even push the envelope a little bit too far, was ejected from the Texas game, but he has that fighter mentality in him. He really does. So, again, like you ta- like you touched on, maybe with a couple more years of coaching, he received some good coaching from Ron Crook and Joe Wickline during his time at West Virginia, but with a few more years of it, especially since he lost that one year due to injury, I think he could get some more out of it.
2: Jed, I know he had two seasons since the torn ACL, but is it fair to say that he's fully recovered from that knee injury? Because sometimes it does take a year or two till you get your legs back under you.
1: That's a fair question, and to be honest with you, I think if there was a little timidity to it, it might have been early on uh, through the course of that fall camp, his first season back. He overcame that. Uh, You really don't see any residual effects from it. He is a knee bender. That's part of his game. Uh, I don't see any holdover fallout effects from that injury at this point.
0: Final question, Jed. West Virginia's other prospect that I really loved watching um, over the course of this offseason, I just think – Maybe five years ago even, teams are like, this guy can't play linebacker in the NFL, but now he probably can, and that's David Long, 5'11", 227. This guy can run and do the things you like from an NFL linebacker. Do you think he fits better into what the NFL is now doing now on the defensive side of the ball, say, as compared to five or six years ago?
1: I do, and one of the things that's happened in the league, obviously, is it's become a sub-package league, right? Roughly 70% or so of NFL snaps are played in sub-packages, a lot of that heavy nickel-type look. We saw a kid from West Virginia a year ago and Kaiser White who was a Spurs safety for us. He ended up in San Diego and became a starter as a linebacker for them as a result of the style of play that we're talking about. When you look at David Long, first Kaiser was 6'2", 216. A little more lean than David. David's a more compact kid. He's 5'11, about two and a quarter, but he'll bring it, knows for the football. Uh, great kid. Getting his degree really mattered to him. He's the first male on his mom's side of the family to graduate from college. I think he would have come back if he didn't get that degree. that That really mattered to him. Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year, he's production in a bottle. I mean, really, really is. When you look at his tackles for loss, 34.5 TFLs in his last 21 games. Sometimes he just flat-out looked unblockable. But being a film rat is part of what leads to that. He lives in the film room. He has a true nose for the football. His production is incredibly high. He's an incredibly consistent kid. He can fight through garbage and read things. And his football IQ is very high. So the question becomes, For us, we played the odd stack defense last year, and he was a will linebacker in the odd odd stack. So does he translate to a true... 3-4 or 4-3-well linebacker when you're going to be asked to pursue things from the backside, chase things down as teams run to the strength of their formation. He has that ability. You talked about his skill set. You talked about his athleticism. He has that ability to not only utilize his speed but also the vision to fight through traffic because he chases things down from the backside. If there's an opening, David Long will find it, and he can be nightmarish to try and control and block.
0: Jed, great stuff, great information. We really appreciate the time this afternoon, and best of luck covering the rest of spring football, all right? Thanks a lot, Jed. Thank you, guys. That's Jed Dredding, covers West Virginia for the Mountaineer Sports Radio Network. He is their sideline reporter. And now let's go on to our next school, and that is Dave Harding, who's the Duke football radio analyst down there. Of course, everyone else is paying attention to Duke basketball, but Dave, we got you covered with Duke football here. How are you? Thanks for joining us. (laughs)
3: Oh, absolutely. You're right. March Madness. But shoot, I mean, Pro Day today, there's a lot of madness going on on the football side also.
0: So how many times did David Cutcliffe try to head over to Duke basketball practice to get Zion Williamson to play defensive end or tight end?
3: Oh, I think uh, plenty of times. The the invitation is open and it's standing for whatever Zion wants to go. I think you could just plug and play just about anywhere uh, he wants to go. We have that debate all the time around here but uh, where he would be best suited, I think he'd be an absolute monster along the defensive line.
2: Well, I just hope that you find a stronger pair of cleats to uh, <laughs> hold them in place, <laughs> <Yeah>. Dave. <laughs> based So no, what no, we no. saw. I wish um, they had
3: that same problem when I was playing, but you know, I, I could play in just about anything and not have to worry about busting through them.
2: Indeed. Well, speaking of David Cutcliffe, clearly he's got a tremendous track record when it comes to grooming quarterbacks, as you well know, Dave, when it comes to Eli Manning, who we know well here from the Giants organization, Peyton Manning, and so forth. And I'm sure that's part of the appeal of Daniel Jones, who does look like a pro-typical quarterback when you look at his size and so forth. You've been around him. You've seen him. Let's start with the positives first. What jumps out to you about Daniel Jones as he tries to make the transition from college to the pros?
3: Well, I think the big thing is um the stuff that you can't coach, and that's his mentality and mindset. You know, you can try to foster that to be improved in a certain player coming out of high school. But Daniel Jones, uh let's not forget, was really not recruited out of high school and has this quiet and, and silent demeanor about him, but one that is just unstoppable. He he plays with a chip on his shoulder and from day one during his time at Duke you could tell he was committed to being the best quarterback he could become at the college level. And I I believe he's achieved that and is ready to move on to the next level. But David Cutcliffe getting him in here uh, and working with him on a day in day out basis, I think has been huge for Daniel, but it's been more about what he's been able to do in the film room and the amount of dedication and the hours that he's put in to prepare to get better as a, as a quarterback. He didn't have a scholarship. In fact, when he first got to Duke and as, Turned himself into this NFL caliber uh, player and and one that everybody talking about. So pretty impressive, and uh, he, he's just to me he's a complete package from a professional standpoint. Uh, a really really good guy and. Uh, football is very important to him.
0: What do you think, Dave, are his major goals to try to show off at the Pro Day today? What do you think, you know, all these guys work with their college coaches, they have their personal coaches on the side. What do you think he wants to showcase today at Duke Pro Day that maybe some pro scouts might have questions about?
3: Yeah, yeah I think that's a good question. Um, obviously, you want to you prove your accuracy, but I think during the course of his postseason run and, and the tour that he's done, whether that's at the, a senior bowl or at the combine uh, earlier in the year. Uh, one of the things that people have questioned about him is his arm strength and does he have the zip? To put on the ball to get you know those those deeper out routes or on a dig and fit the ball into a tight window, maybe whether that 's in zone coverage or or something that you know, those tighter windows in the NFL that he 'll be throwing into there 's no doubt in my mind that he can make every single throw any throw that a, a, an NFL offensive coordinator or team's going to ask of him he can do but it's going to be whether or not he can and and with what velocity he can put on the ball Mm. to fit it in there the advantage that he has from that standpoint is how cerebral he is how smart he is coach cutcliffe expects a lot from his quarterbacks and so from an early age and an early time here on campus He's had to control and, and understand and master the entire offensive scheme. He's great at the pre-snap reads. Um, I think that's where you see a lot of the comparisons with the Mannings. You know, Peyton Manning able to play basically with no feeling in his hand and win a Super Bowl with that just because of how smart he was. And Daniel Jones has a lot of those characteristics and traits. It's just a matter of does he have the zing and the zip on the football. But to me, that's something that – He can continue to improve on, continue to to work in in a new system, under new tutelage, outside of the Cutcliffe realm, if you will, and and continue to get better. To me, the sky is the limit. So he's a really good player already, but the potential, I think he's just scratched the surface.
2: Talking with Dave Harding, Duke football radio analyst, and Dave. When you look at his numbers, I think what's also something that's of note is his ability to run and use his legs. I mean, he had over 300 yards. He had three touchdowns last season. And when the comparisons are made between Eli Manning and Daniel Jones, because they both worked under Cutcliffe, people say, well, Jones has a little bit more upside because of his athleticism. How much is that an asset as you viewed him play the quarterback position?
3: Well, it was a huge asset in the college game. And there's that big debate about whether or not you – can have uh, the same success in the pro ranks as you do in college as a running quarterback. He's not the mobile style quarterback as a Kyler Murray. um, That's going to be coming out this year as well, but he's a player. If you want to incorporate some of the zone read play action type game uh, into his uh, repertoire in, in the NFL, I think he's able to do it. And he's certainly flexible enough on the run and an athlete enough to where if there is pressure coming from a certain side of the field, he's able to avoid that. And it's tough enough, and this can be considered a minus at times, but it's tough enough to stand in there and take a hit uh, in the face of pressure and, and throw the ball down the field to complete a pass. Now, obviously, there's a, a more of a, 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 an intelligent and a smart way to go about that when you're being paid millions of dollars to play the position. But in college, uh, to me, he was a major asset in his athleticism on the ground was a huge element to the Duke offense, which kept them in games during the season.
0: We're joined by Dave Harding, Duke Radio football analyst, does their games. Dave, you kind of partially answered this question on my previous question, but I kind of want to follow up on it, because you talked about how he wasn't really recruited, didn't, didn't have a scholarship. And it speaks to his hard work and, and his, his forthrightness and his intelligence. And I think you're impressed by watching how well he's been coached. His fundamentals are good. He does all the right things. But in the end, and you know this, football is a talent game, right? And you eventually have to have that God-given talent to exceed at the highest level. So I guess my question for you is do you believe he has that high-end talent in him that an NFL coach— can coach up for him to play at the highest level in the NFL because everyone has to have that in them for the coach to get it out of them if you know where I'm going with that
3: I do, I do and I think the answer to that question is yes, uh, 100% I kind of touched on this earlier but you know, saying that the potential, he's just kind of scratching the surface Um, he's done a lot with the tools that he's had at Duke, um, with the coaching that he's gotten at Duke and um, he's developed his body uh, a little bit more and he's developed his game especially from a cerebral part where he's able to make those reads you've seen him get better but uh from a from an arm strength standpoint from an accuracy strength standpoint i i feel like he he is he's very good um he's first round late first round people saying now maybe high second round status but that's just with with what I've said about scratching the surface he's going to continue to mature to develop this is a kid that put on several inches grew several inches um, right before college he's I mean he, he's maturing and growing into his body some of the knocks on the you know, thinner lower body I and mean, he's he's still working in the weight room and is growing up to me, The upside on Daniel Jones is probably better than just about any quarterback in this draft, Mm. and he's already um, so so highly regarded. So that to me, you know, you you hear a lot of people say, "Well, he's he's getting inflated because of the Cutcliffe factor, because of the Manning factor." No, I I don't think that's necessarily inflation. I think that proves that he can be challenged from a mental aspect and can pick up just about any concept or scheme you throw at him he's able to diagnose and to assess what's going to be taking place on the football field and oh by the way he makes good decisions once the ball has been snapped outside of that he's got the frame the six five he's tall and his his throwing motion and all of those little nitpicky things that add up in the grand scheme of things like what you were saying about talking about in your question I think are all things that could continue to be tweaked with him and he will just continue to skyrocket and, and to be a really, really good, consistent quarterback down the road. He, I, I think right now you could go in, he could play a game next year in the NFL and not lose you the game, hmm. potentially win it. But this is a guy that can come in eventually and stay, sitting out a year, maybe learning under an Eli Manning up at, at New York would be beneficial to him to where he could come in that next year after being in in that system and come in and be a, a game changer and win football games for an organization.
2: Dave, you mentioned that one of the things he wants to work on today at his Pro Day is to maybe quiet the skeptics with respect to his accuracy because you look at completion percentage just under 60% in his career. Another notable number is 38 drop passes by his receiving core, I believe, this season alone. Now, the reason I throw out those numbers, context is important. When you evaluate Daniel Jones, is this a reflection, perhaps, the inaccuracy issues, the completion percentage of the talent around him or his decision making? How would you assess that?
3: Well, I think it's a little bit of both, and that, that's a tough question to answer. Certainly wasn't helped with the 38 passes, and having been in all the games over the past couple of years that he's played in, I mean, there have been balls right on the money where they should have been caught, should have been touchdowns, and that helps pad your stats. Um, he's also playing in what is arguably the most competitive league in college football in the ACC. So, He's been going against first-round talent on defense, and hasn't had the best offensive line over the past <laughs> few years to provide protection. So he's he's taken his licks. You know he has he has had to work through and to work his way up to that sixty percent completion rate. Now, with that said, and we've talked about that, there's there's still potential. There's still improvement to be made. There are times where he will make a, a an unbelievable throw to show and to prove that he can make that pass and you're like gosh that's incredible and then a few more plays later that same throw sails a little bit wide so he can continue to improve on his consistency but to me the fact that he can make that pass in the first place proves that he's got the talent and it's just a matter of again tweaking a few things and getting the consistency down to where it that incompletion rating is not as low as it, or incompletion rating percentage, rather, isn't as high as it was. Um, but still, it, I, I think that 60% that everybody's talking about is a little bit of an outlier because of exactly what you said, the 38 drop passes. And that's that 60% is a career number, I believe. Yeah, right. And 38 passes dropped is just this past season. So there, there's certainly been a, a factor um, to consider with that.
0: Final question, Dave, and you mentioned it in your last answer, the offensive line, and I watched probably around four to five games of your guys' games on coaches' tape over the past month or so, and he's running for his life a lot. I mean, you know, you guys are playing yeah. some of the best defensive lines. How do you think he handled that pressure? Because how quarterbacks handle that pressure? Does he stay in there? Does he throw even with the guy in his face? Does he kind of run for cover a lot? Does he go off his back foot? How does he handle it in the pocket when that pressure comes?
3: Oh, I think his mobility in the pocket is is tremendous, and he's got a unique knack of feeling pressure and stepping up. I mean, slight little nuances that even if you're watching the game, you, you got to go back and watch the tape to see. Oh, wow! You know, he he took that half step up into the pocket just enough to buy himself some more time to deliver the pass down the field. He's got the flexibility to to make a pass over the top of of a defensive player that's coming right to his face. Um, I, I I think his toughness level uh, under pressure is uncanny. And you know, sometimes you're like, gosh, just throw that ball away and not take the hit. And that's something he'll develop more and and will learn more once he's got NFL players breathing down his neck. But, I go back to the Clemson game this year at Clemson, the blue devils uh, on the road, you know, playing extremely well. It's a close game. And there were several passes to me that were right on target, even though he had the best defensive line in college football, right in his lap, that if they had been caught, which they were definitely catchable balls, the blue devils are in that game. And you're, you're looking at a potential for a major upset. I think he's got the toughness and the mindset and the accuracy, all that included where, paired with some really good talent on the outside at wide receiver, he's going to be a really, really consistent and winning quarterback on the next level.
0: Dave, great stuff. We really appreciate the time. Go get to that pro day. Enjoy it, and we'll talk to you down the road. All right. Thanks a lot, Dave. All
3: right. Sounds good, guys. Take care.
0: Dave Harding, Duke Football Radio Analyst, does a great job. Boy, he's a big fan of Daniel Jones, huh? Indeed. I think Daniel just sent him a check after he gets (laughs) the NFL contract. He is, wow, loves Daniel Jones. And we're going to finish our quarterback trip around college football today we've talked about Will Greer we've talked about Daniel Jones now we're going to talk about Drew Locke and the other prospects coming out of Missouri with Alex Schiffer who covers the team for the Kansas City Star Alex you got John Schmuck and Lance Meadow up here in New Jersey how are you today
4: I'm good. I'm good. Are you guys broadcasting from Rutherford or somewhere else by the
0: Meadowlands? Oh, uh, we we are right across oh, the yeah. street from the stadium, hanging out in the swamp. And Alex, by the way, is a Jersey guy. So once I saw we've a Jersey guy covering <laughs> Missouri football, I had to have you
2: on.
4: Yeah, no, it's uh, this is the first bit I've done with uh, with ties to my home area. I'm originally from Westfield, and I went to St. Joe's and it for high school. So. Uh, So it was cool seeing a 201 area code come up. It's usually a friend or family when I uh, see something like that come up
0: out here. Absolutely. Well, Alex, let's start with Drew Locke. Um, He's a guy that just today, if you look at Peter Schrager's mock draft on NFL.com, who's going number six of the Giants, Drew Locke. So tell me about him and how you think maybe you've heard his stock rising a little bit as people have interacted with him and kind of seen him up close at the Senior Bowl as Pro Day and seen not just his personality but also his A-plus arm talent.
4: Yeah, I've uh, I've known Drew since uh, he was in high school and I was a freshman in college. That's when I kind of started paying attention to him. He was a guy on Missouri fans' radar for a long time because his dad played at Mizzou as an offensive lineman in the late 80s, and his grandfather also played for Mizzou. His father's uh, offensive line coach his senior year was none other than Andy Reid before he joined <laughs> wow. the NFL ranks. Wow. And uh, he uh, he's kind of, it's been baptism by fire for him, really, uh, at the college level. You know, he was expected to kind of, kind of like what the Giants situation was, be the backup for his freshman year behind a starter and get limited snaps. And then that starter got suspended and, and it's been Drew Locke ever since from Missouri. You know, he's a rare it's rare you see a quarterback go that high that was a four year starter. Most of these guys that are coming out are juniors or in Dwayne mm-hmm. Haskin's case, I think a redshirt sophomore. So uh, so as a kid, you know, I think he's very funny. Uh, he's got a great personality, he knows, you know, when how to handle things when the cameras are on and everything. I, I thought if you looked at him at the senior bowl and watched his press conference compared to Daniel Jones, um, Daniel Jones, I think, didn't look as comfortable with the, uh, with the media as Drew did. And maybe, you know, Missouri, which is why I came out here. I was known for his journalism program. And uh, he had a lot of cameras in his face all four years. so Maybe that helped him be prepared for that. But I, uh, I think his personality is really good with, with all that. He signs for all the kids. He's very, uh, he's very personable when you catch him off the field or if you run into him in town. And uh, you know with the arm talent—it's—it's it's interesting. You know, I, I thought the Giants would be a good situation for him a couple of weeks ago before the OBJ trade because they already have some young pieces to build around, like Saquon and OBJ. But uh, I think you know, I think it'd be good for him to to sit behind somebody like an Eli Manning. You know, I said he's been baptism by fire from him. He's never really had a mentor or had a situation where he sat. You know, he's been a phenomenal athlete his uh, his entire career. He had. Division One basketball offers from Final Four schools like Oklahoma and Wichita State. Wow, really? Um, yeah, yeah. He's he's a very he's a phenomenal athlete. Um, Greg Marshall was hmm. going to his high school football practices to try and recruit him for basketball, and then he kind of saw him throw, and he he realized it was a lost cause. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but he, uh, yeah, no, he. I, I think I think the best situation for him in the NFL is a team that he gets sit behind a quarterback for a year and and kind of learn from for sure fun fact by the way i talked about his dad uh playing for andy Reid. his dad i'm trying to remember if it would have been the 1988 or 89 season his dad actually had a free agent stint with the giants he played in one preseason game for bill parcells up in buffalo before getting cut
2: wow boy this is like the who's who seven degrees of uh, drew lock here that's amazing <laughs> i like it in terms of all of his connections When you look at his production on the field, personality aside, Alex, I think one of the critiques has been, well, the numbers are not there against elite competition in the SEC and that he didn't necessarily deliver consistently, especially when you look at Alabama, Georgia, some of the big games that Missouri had on its schedule. How fair is that in terms of criticism based on what you've seen his performance-wise against some of the top-caliber talent in the SEC?
4: Yeah, I think, uh, I think a couple things. First off, you know, with Alabama, nobody was beating Alabama this year except for Clemson. Uh, <laughs> that's fair. I, I, think, I think that's one that, that's tough. You know, I, if you look at each game, which obviously the NFL scouts will do, I mean, if you look at his touchdown to Jalen Knox against Alabama, it was an NFL touchdown. It was an absolute laser. He sent him across the end zone after seeing the coverage and just delivered a bullet to him. And obviously Missouri lost that game and it wasn't very close. But he had some throws in there against the top defense Bama that made you say, wow, uh, he, he could hold his own on Sunday with some of those. Uh, I, think the, I think the criticisms with him uh, against top competition are, are fair in some ways, because he had four years to kind of beat some teams like that. I also think it's worth noting some of the personnel Missouri had in, uh, in some of those years. You know, Missouri had a top five national defense in 2015. Which would have been his freshman year. We took over as a starter four or five games in, and he struggled. and the entire unit really struggled to get first downs. There were some injuries. There was some guys that weren't playing that now, in hindsight, shows they should have been. And that you know that you can't pin the whole thing on on him with the on him with some of that stuff just based on you know it, it, some of that stuff was widespread as a team. He had three offensive coordinators, two coaching changes while at Missouri, so I think i got to do the count on the quarterback coaches. But you know, <laughs> he, he dealt with a lot of attrition. So um, I, I think that some of that is fair. I also think that a lot of context is key in that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I talked about the basketball background. Gary Pinkle, Missouri's longtime coach who recruited and signed Drew and was his coach's freshman year. He was telling me that, you know, because Drew – I remember one of the first times I interviewed Drew, you know, his summers were so crazy between AAU basketball and all those scouting events like the Elite 11, the opening, etc. He once told me he was, like, going from – he was dressed up in his AAU uniform uh, or or in basketball jumps at the Elite 11 presentation because they were going to the presentation, hopping on a red-eye, and then going to play an AAU basketball tournament the next morning. So. He, Gary Pinkle has always told me, and that you know, he, he did this a lot longer than I have, that uh, because Drew was doing so much more than football in high school, his development kind of came later than others because he never fully devoted the time to it. He was splitting between basketball, football. He did a little bit of high school baseball before focusing on those two. He elected to not be an early enrollee at Missouri, like a lot of quarterbacks are, so he could finish his basketball season. So I think that all that, and, and NFL teams will know all that, but I think I think all that information is is worth putting into the context of him against ranked teams.
0: Yeah, and you know, Alex, and, and, and we're joined by Alex Schiffer, he covers the Mizzou Tigers for the Kansas City Star. Another piece of context in there, and you kind of touched on it during your last answer, and I talked to Drew at the Senior Bowl. I was there. I was also at the Combine. I had a, probably two- to three-minute conversation with him um, down in Alabama. And, and I asked him, you know, what makes you feel like that you're ready to make the jump to the pros? And he talked about how he basically played in four different offensive systems in his years in college, and he learned a new system every year. You got to think that gives him a bit of a mental leg up when he gets to the pros and has to learn stuff. He understands how to ingest Offenses on a year-to-year basis.
4: Yeah, and and something I forgot to say in my last answer. You know, you look at you know the the ranked quarterback thing. I mean, Patrick Mahomes and Jared Goff didn't really beat anybody in college either. And look, at are they're, they're doing pretty well for themselves. But and again, that's Big Twelve and Pac-12 football. So the USC's, the Oklahomans, et cetera, of the world. But you know, to your point, I mean, it's not even that he played in four different offenses. They were very different offenses i mean josh heupel who was drew's oc his sophomore and junior year now the head coach of central florida he is kind of a disciple of the air raid offense he played at oklahoma and coached under uh i think he was the Texas tech a little bit you know he missouri system um drew junior year, when he led the nation at touchdowns i mean he barely had to uh, stay in the pocket. I mean, they were getting rid of the ball so quickly and running so many plays at such a high tempo. He barely got sacked. He he barely had to really make too many decisions. And his receivers, I think, had maybe a dozen routes apiece. Maybe. It might have even been less than that. Wow. And as Emmanuel Hall, his wideout uh, for a long time, told me the receivers kind of chose their own route, like they, it was up to the receiver as to where they were going to go. You look, at, uh, you look at Derek Dooley, his offensive coordinator this past year, who came from the NFL with the Cowboys as yeah. a White House coach. Yeah. He completely overhauled it. He put a lot more pro-style concepts in it. Uh, I think it was ten times the amount of routes he added for each receiver. He, he completely overhauled the system. So uh, it, it wasn't even that he played in multiple offenses in college. They were night and day in some cases from –
2: from each other. Well, Alex, you brought up Emmanuel Hall, and you know I think you brought up a very important point about how context is so important when you evaluate specifically the quarterback position because whether it's college, the NFL, it's the team. It's not necessarily one individual as important as the quarterback position is, and Hall... Who, and it's very interesting to hear that you're saying wide receivers had the freedom and flexibility to choose their own route. Which but, seems crazy, by yeah, the I way. I mean, that, that's nuts. <laughs> I can only imagine what it's like for a quarterback to deal with that. But, you know, he's a guy that put up impressive numbers in terms of average yards per catch. He was up there in the nation, I think over 22 yards per catch. But you look at his blazing speed and you just wonder is there more to his game, Alex? than the blazing speed? Is there more versatility in terms of his ability to run the route tree, or is he just mainly a vertical threat that was working with Drew Locke?
4: Yeah, he's, I think he's one of the most interesting cases in the draft for so many reasons. It's, uh, it's funny. He told me last week that teams have talked to him about playing with Drew, and like I say with OBJ gone from the Giants, I, I wondered if they'd be. A, he'd be a guy they looked at in the second or third round as a compliment if they were to take Drew. Um you know, he first off when he I, I think what he did at the Combine is amazing. I mean he had a forty three five, I think, vertical. He set the broad jump record for his position and he did this with an injured groin and he ran a four four forty or four I think it was four three nine. He's four two zero when healthy uh, in the forty, I'm told. He he was a track star in high wow. school that was yeah. recruited by Oregon. Uh, a lot of national powers. And because of the way the offense worked under Josh Heupel, you know, he's a really fast guy. you got to choose your own route. He can take the top off a of defense. I'm going to go deep. <laughs> so he didn't, uh, he didn't really get to show fully what he could do while in Missouri with all that. And and Derek Julie comes in. Uh, the the first couple games of the season before Emmanuel Hall got hurt, I, I thought he looked like a first-round pick between his measurables and, and how they were using him. And they were having him do a lot of short routes and slants, a lot of uh, intermediate kind of stuff. And then he got hurt. And we go back to the point of, of Drew's numbers against ranked teams and everything. If you look at Missouri's numbers between having Emmanuel Hall and not having Emmanuel Hall, he looks like the most important player in the history of football. It's, <laughs> he's like a five-time multiplier. You look at their first downs, their touchdowns, their yards – he just opened everything up for them on the field, and they lost him for like six games in the middle of the year. You know, he was out there against Georgia, but he couldn't really do much. Um, he he didn't really do a lot in the game against Florida. He, his father passed away also in the middle of the season, which also threw a wrench into the whole thing. So he's he just had a crazy ride, and, and I'm kind of happy you guys pushed me back on the call because Mel Kuyper was on, and he looks at Hall now, but given the pro day and, and the combine he had as a second, third-round pick, so... I think he's got a lot left in the tank. I think his durability is a little bit of a question, but I, I think he could be a really, really good pro because he, he checked every single box, essentially.
0: Alex, great stuff. Happy to have you back on in your home state in New Jersey. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to you down the road, all right? Thanks a lot, Alex.
4: Yes. I felt good to, to strengthen the accent. So uh, <laughs> thanks for having me. You
0: got all it. right, man. Take it easy. And I'm sure uh, have fun down there. Have some Northeasterners down there. Hey. <laughs> Hanging out with those youths down in Missouri, right? <laughs> Little
2: uh, my cousin Vinny yeah. reference. I threw it in there, sure, which is always appropriate to bring out a program.
0: What state was my cousin Vinny in? Help me out.
2: Do you remember? Wasn't it Alabama? Well, I thought it was Alabama. I it was right? Alabama? Yeah. Okay. Well, we're yeah. close. I believe it was Alabama because if it was certainly SEC correct, country. Let me put it that yes, way. Yes, but if memory serves me correct, there's a line. When Marissa Tomei and Joe Pesci's character are having a conversation, I think, right out the courthouse, and they were talking about, I could be mistaken, maybe I'm making this up, but it was about finding Chinese food, and they're like, finding Chinese food in Alabama could be quite a challenge, or something to that degree, I believe.
0: We remind so. you, Big Kick Kickoff 5 is presented by Coors Light. Download the Coors Light Rewards app to an amazing Giants prizes. We'll take your calls right now at 201-939-4513. Get on the lines, we'll take your calls the rest of the way. Uh, real quick, Lance, your reaction from the three guys, especially on the three quarterbacks we touched on.
2: Well, to me what's interesting about these three quarterbacks is after you talk about Kyler Murray and you know, you talk about Dwayne Haskins, you really it's really the eye of the beholder in terms of who puts Jones ahead of Locke, who puts Greer ahead of Locke, and so forth. So I mean I think there's pros and cons to all of these quarterbacks. The Locke conversation that we just had I commend Alex for bringing up context because I'm a big fan of context. I don't think you could just look at these quarterbacks on an island with statistics. I think you need to take into consideration all those other factors, and I think he brought up a lot of relevant contextual statistics. With Daniel Jones, you know, he checks off the mark of he looks like a really good quarterback, but there's accuracy questions. And the fact that he played with a rough offensive line, is that a positive that he handled pressure? Or is that an issue of, well, if he gets to an NFL team where there's similar issues, can he rise to the occasion? And then with respect to...
0: Yeah, was quite it, frankly, I don't think Duke had exactly top talent around him no, like a lot and, and of these other ACC programs. Well, you I mean, that's I why
2: mean? I asked Dave Harding about the 38 drop passes. Yes, yeah, no, I mean, it was a great question. We're not talking about five drop passes, John. Yeah. We're talking mm-hmm. about 38, <laughs> you know? That was a great question. It reminded me of the year when, and I'm not trying to defend Eli Manning here, but there was that year where Eli had about 25 interceptions, if you remember, John, and at least seven of them were deflections oh. off of wide receivers. So if you look at the 25 interceptions, and say, not a good season for the quarterback. You watch every game, you provide content. Context, and then, obviously, it's a different story. So, you know, that's something that, to me, you have to take into consideration. Greer, to me, has always been an intriguing quarterback. And for some reason, he's fallen under the radar. I don't think he's gotten as much hype as the Locks and the Joneses of the world. But my big question with Greer is, West Virginia's offense, if you've paid attention to their football team, with Holgerson, Spavital, who was their OC, who's now head coach, they've consistently put up monster numbers, John. So my million-dollar question is, Is it Greer or is it just, hey, here's another quarterback that was brought through the system. He did very well. And then you wonder, is it going to be able to translate? And there's been some guys coming out of West Virginia who have been solid quarterbacks in college. And they haven't necessarily lit it up when it comes to the NFL. So, I mean, I would say I've got question marks across the board with all three of them. I would not necessarily take a... Top ten pick on any of them as it stands right now. I think though, if you're getting into the teens and the high twenties, I think it's something to consider if you think the value makes sense. Two zero one nine three nine four five one three. Let's go to Dan and Poconos to
0: lead us off today. Dan, how are you?
5: How you doing, fellas?
0: Thanks for being patient, Dan. We appreciate it.
5: Uh, you're welcome. Uh, I just wanted to, you know, great. Love having all the guests on. You know, I'm sure we all love in here and, uh, you know, firsthand how much they're in love with their prospects and everything. But it's great. It's all good. Um, I just got one gripe. And and I guess it's just me. I'm kind of. I've been a giant fan for God knows how many years. I'm in my late 50s. And, um, you know, it just drives me nuts how people call up. They give their opinion, right? Yep. On uh, whether they want. Josh Rosen as the quarterback, or they say, Oh, we got to pick Hackskins at number six, or we got to do this. We need a quarterback. And, you know, and thank God we got Gentleman and, and his guys controlling all that. But the thing that drives me crazy is that, you know, I'm, I'm working, so I'm a little out of breath. I'm trying to hold it in there. That's okay. Um, <laughs> I got to take a break. No, you're fine. Um, okay. and uh, But they get their information, and you guys drive me a little nuts with this, too. They get their information from the soap opera, Watch Woman Network, called the NFL Network, <laughs> the ESPN, where these these analysts and that Good Morning Football show. Oh my God, it's like watching. It it's sometimes it's not even about football. And 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 you guys just referenced a mock draft by that guy Schrager, who just went a couple last there uh, in the playoffs. Said that Nick Foles was absolutely the number one. Remember, he said he was the best. He he's the best clutch Super Bowl quarterback. That ever lived, yeah. that you know, I remember he came man. out and said that. I'm yeah. like, and and I'm supposed to listen to what this guy has to say as far as a mock draft. I mean, geez, Louise, and and it's just it's mind boggling. Well, Dan, Dan, honestly, uh, honestly, here here's
0: the problem. For for one, it's a show that's on two hours every day. As two people that have to phone an hour every day, we know how tough it can be, and especially going all year long, they have to find things to talk about. And sometimes you're gonna get a hot take here mm-hmm. and there. And it's going to happen. But Pete actually is pretty well-versed and connected around the league. Look, mock drafts at this time of year, they don't mean a whole lot. Uh, I think some people do have insight, but draft boards aren't even set yet. And anybody that says they know who the Giants are going to pick before they've even had the quarterbacks in the building yet to do their full-day visits. Remember, Dave Gettleman didn't go to these pro days Pat Shermer's gone, Chris Pettit's gone, Dave spends the whole day with them when they come here. And ultimately, that's going to play a big role, along with obviously what they did on tape, into who the Giants are going to draft. So, right now, it's a lot of speculation, we have
2: fun yeah. with it, and that's why we're here. Yeah. Okay. Nobody yeah. says you got to put I, stock I, I and substance speak. behind every opinion. Correct. So, you know, that's what yeah, it comes down I to. I
5: hear you guys. You, you got to fill that time in somehow, and it's not. Uh, nobody knows better than you guys. It's not easy day after day. Especially, it's great having the guests in, so you don't have to listen to knuckleheads like me calling in and talking like oh. this. You got guys calling it? No, nah, Dan, no so anyway, worries, man. We appreciate the call. Good. Yeah, appreciate the phone Thank call. Thank you.
0: And Dan, look, uh, we love hearing from the fans. We wouldn't have a show without the fans. We're here to take the calls and get the fans' opinion. So we value what everybody has to say and. Everyone, look, you're a fan. That's the whole point of having
2: a fan is to have an opinion, right? You love the team. You're into it. You're calling. You have an opinion. We talk about it. And we have fun with it. Well, the bottom line is the opinion should just have some facts behind them. That's all. And yeah. that's why I said it, it's up to you to put stock and substance behind the opinion. But right. if somebody is providing facts or conversations they've had, then I don't think they're just throwing stuff out there to stick on the wall. It's just a matter of you have to decipher what you hold in high regard.
0: And I think some people are probably – in terms of the the people that do the mock drafts and the reporters, some people are more dialed into what teams are thinking than others. I think some people out there just say, "Oh, this seems like a good fit, I'll put him there. I think other people actually do talk to people around yeah. the league, and frankly, I think Peter Schrager is one of them, and I think they have a better feeling of what teams are going to do. Now, he said in his little blurb underneath that, and, and you actually hear from Peter Schrager, we're going to launch a new podcast in the coming days, and he's going to be our first guest, and we talk about this, so you can make sure you tune in, and we'll get more into it. But... Uh, It's called The Big Blue Huddle, by the way. Make sure you stay tuned. It'll be on all the podcast platforms, everything like that, next couple of days. But he talks about, to me, how, look, these guys are going to show up and they're going to sell themselves when they have these full-day meetings. And he says, if the Giants fall in love with a quarterback and they believe that that guy's good enough to be the next franchise quarterback, he believes they'll pick him at sixth. And he has said that Dave Gettleman doesn't throw up smoke screens; He's going to tell you what he thinks. I mean... He didn't hide the fact he loved Saquon Barkley last year, did yeah. he? I mean, I don't think that was like a, a state secret, by any means. No, he so, said your mother could scout him. Correct. correct, that was his line. And he has said that they want to find the Giants' next franchise quarterback. Pat Shermer said today at the owner's meeting, we'll go through the quotes before we say goodbye, that better sooner than later, the Giants get their next quarterback in here. So p- connect the dots. No one's hiding the fact the Giants are looking for a quarterback. It's just a matter of whether or not they believe whoever's available at 6 or 17 is better or as good as the other players that are available at 6 and 17, and that's
2: going to determine whether or not they pick a quarterback when they're up the draft. Well, and mock drafts to me are absolutely meaningless other than just filling up time before the draft. At the end of the day, does anyone go back and look how accurate mock drafts are? Do you go back and you look at what the guy wrote down five weeks prior to the draft? Is that accurate?
0: Especially this. Look, I think the week of the draft, certain guys you can be like,
2: all right, maybe we're seeing a pattern here. But you're right. I mean, well, but even if— it's a mock draft that you like, at the end of the day, the draft still has to happen. Of course. So who cares course. who they predicted to go with right. the third overall pick? Then the third overall pick's going to happen. you got to live with that player going third overall. So, you know, mock drafts are to fill up time because there's so many months from the end of the season to the draft. And, and it they gives get a people, lot of clicks. Yeah, it gives people an
0: opportunity at yeah. nauseum to sure. talk about the same things over and over again. I mean, did one person predict the Browns were going to take Denzel Ward fourth overall last year? I don't remember anybody actually throwing that out there. Neither do I. So there you go. That's why. And the Colts were very happy that Quentin Nelson was sitting there at 6. They had no complaints, and it worked out very (laughs) well
2: for them, we should add.
0: (laughs) Anthony in Charleston's next. Anthony, what's up?
6: Hey, guys. How are you? We're
0: doing great, Anthony. What's up?
6: Awesome. First of all, thanks for all the college scouting stuff. You know, it's real detailed, and I think it gives a perspective that thank you. You know, is nuanced. It sounds crazy.
0: Um,
6: we oh, uh, nuance
0: on new nuance on the internet. What's going on, Anthony? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's nuts, man. Um, so anyway,
6: the if I'm looking at it, the offense is going to be good. So you've got a good offensive line. You've got good skill positions. I've called it before. I said we're way overloaded at skill. I didn't think they would go that far, but you know they <laughs> <laughs> they definitely addressed that. My actual call is about the defense and the scheme, right? So um, if you look at when we won last year, it was against good defenses but bad offenses, right? So the defense, after we had the fire sale, didn't really have to do much to win, but then we played good offenses, and the defense couldn't hold up, right? Yeah, I mean, I
0: think think you saw the issues against good offenses, frankly, more in the first half of the year. In the second half of the year, when they, you know, Dallas, they scored plenty of points— they couldn't and Dallas is a better defense than offense, right? They gave up too many. And then you had the Colts game yep. too. But yeah, you're right. I think in general, when they played the top top quarterbacks, that's when the Giants probably struggled the most. I think that's fair.
6: So, you know, I'm looking at it, I'm a little nervous, right? Because you definitely showed up your top end of the the defense in terms of Peppers. You got Bethiah Jenkins is still playing well. I know we don't, you know, some people don't love him, but he actually graded out pretty well. Oh yeah, he's a good and you're player. Be- yeah, and you're hoping Beal's the guy. There's not much behind that outside of maybe Michael Thomas, right? And hopefully, um, you know, some of the young guys. But that's a pretty thin. You have no edge rusher, and your off- your outside linebackers, which in Betcher's scheme is huge, because you need to zone blitz, you need to run man, right? You want to run multiples. That's going to be difficult because. Who do we have? Lorenzo Carter? Is that it?
0: And Kareem Martin. I mean, Kareem Martin would be the other guy. Yeah.
6: And so, I mean, you're real thin there. <laughs> and, you know, I think, um, you know, Ogletree played fair, but not amazing. So, you're looking at the draft. You got three picks in the top 37. I, I'm not sure anyone could argue that. The most important position of need is defensive line because, well, of course. We have to be able to stop the quarterback. I mean, we are not going to win games.
0: Anthony, no I, I, argument. Yeah. If, if you want to argue purely on how, who do you draft to win the most games in 2019, you're going to see eight players on defense in this draft, defensive linemen, cornerbacks, and maybe a couple of
2: linebacks. Yeah, I mean, but you could have made that argument even before free agency. They had 30 sacks last season as a team. I mean, we're talking about five for the and second Vernon. Yeah, and the National Football League. So, you know, you need yeah, the defensive so- lineman who can stop the run and get after the quarterback. And I, I saw a comment from Pat Shermer when he spoke to the media this morning at the owners' meetings that he said, we have to find guys that can get after the quarterback. So it goes without saying. They don't just need one. They need a number of options that they could rotate. And, you know, Marcus Golden is another guy that they brought in via free agency who had a career year under Betcher in 16 where he had 12 and a half sacks. But you need to continue to add volume. There's no doubt about it that the Giants need to bolster that defensive front so that they can rotate players like the Philadelphia Eagles, similar to the Washington Redskins, where you have – Five, six guys, and you're not playing one or two guys, 90 to 95% of the snaps. Remember, Vernon and JPP played 90 to 95% of the snaps in 2016. And that was when Spaggs was the defensive coordinator. And Spaggs even came out and admitted. He didn't want to. He didn't want to do no. that. He felt he was putting his two top guys in a precarious spot. But he said, how can I take off my best elite talent off the field if there's a drop-off from the starters to the back end.
0: And the quote from Shermer, yeah. by the way, today was, we need to get someone who can affect the quarterback. Yeah. That was the quote from Pat Shermer today via Paul Schwartz from The Post.
6: Oh, that, so, yeah, and that's, I mean, so you guys are echoing what I'm saying. And I'll, I'll leave with a question um, because in better scheme, it seems that your defensive ends do at times need to drop off, especially, right, when they when the back flares out or you have those you know those opposite side blitzes, like, someone's going to need to be able to have some basic coverage skills, you know, especially if the guy that we're looking to draft needs to be that kind of defensive end, who is the most likely to fit that scheme? Who could drop? Who has the athletic skills to, to be able to rush and stop the run? That's my only problem with golden. I think, you know, he might get overwhelmed in the run game. You know, but could actually leak out and cover to allow Betcher to be more creative on defense. Carter. And I'll leave on that. I
0: Thanks, appreciate guys. it. Thanks for the yeah. call. I mean, I think that's Lorenzo Carter. Uh, I think he has to develop more as a pass rusher in order to be an edge rusher. I think his strength right now is in space. You know, he's a great athlete. He did that at Georgia. We saw him cover San uh, Francisco. Greta down yeah. the down to the me, field on, on the wheel route, no question. I think he's the guy that has the versatility to do both.
2: Yeah, I think that Lorenzo Carter certainly has the upside, and and I keep referring to that San Francisco game, which you just brought up as well. I think that was somewhat of a coming-out party for him because it was really the first time, and that was the second half of the season where they said, hey, Lorenzo, we're going to put you in a position where we have confidence that you could drop back in coverage. Correct. So if you're just tapping into his potential late last season, now another training camp spring workouts – why can't they perhaps get him to uh, flap his wings a little bit more entering this second season? I think he's the guy, but I also think that they're going to look to address that in the draft too and try to bring in some more versatility at that position.
0: Well, want to remind you, Big Blue Kickoff 5 is presented by Coors Light. Download the Coors Light Rewards app to an amazing Giants prizes. Marco and Kanega will be our final call. I just want to read a couple more quotes real quick uh, from the owners' meeting. Tom Rock and Paul Schwartz, if you go to their Twitter pages, uh, they have some good quotes. Pat Shermer spoke this morning at around 11 o'clock. Uh, Eastern time, So we'll give you a couple of those quotes, but I I do think some of them are are fairly important in terms of where the Giants are going in the future. Um, I'll skip all the reactions to the Beckham stuff because I think we've gotten plenty of that. Uh, Here we go from Shermer. There are numerous good players in this draft. We've done a heck of a lot of work on all the quarterbacks we could potentially draft. We'll see if the final analysis, how it all stacks up. Uh, Shermer on the question, he asked himself on meeting with the quarterbacks. Shermer answered, do I want to coach this guy? Uh, on whether Haskins moves well enough. Sure, absolutely. On Kyler Murray's size, probably not that big of an issue. Talking about, uh, let's see, a couple other things here. Eli Manning all in on the KC model. And again, it's not his job to mentor the player, but the player can watch him play and learn what it's like to be an NFL quarterback. So um, those are some of the things that he talked about uh, down in Arizona, which is important. Uh, This is an important draft for us. Asked if they can make significant upgrades on this team in the draft, he said, "I think so," and I think that's a lot of the important stuff that Pat Shurmur said out there. So let's let's get the Marco to wrap up today. Marco, what's up, pal?
7: Hey guys, two quick questions. Uh, great job as always with these uh, with these interviews. They're awesome. Um, hey, how, t- how tall is Drew Lock?
0: He's about six two, six three. I think he measured in. Oh, wow. I, I I can give oh, you the exact. Big. I can give you the exact height right here. Yeah, six four actually. Oh, he comes yeah. six four, six four two twenty eight. He he is a perfect NFL size oh, quarterback. And Daniel Jones is it, six five, so yeah. just as a means of comparison.
7: Oh, uh, Locke is much bigger than I thought. Okay.
0: Um, oh, he's a big boy. He's thick too, I, man. he's thick.
7: Uh, I see. I I don't. I think Locke is like if you're gonna think of a guy that could potentially sit a year. I love his upside. I love his athleticism. I love that he's someone that, like, just like the guy said he had on. He's someone that if he could just sit in one scheme and one system for a year, imagine just sitting behind Eli. I, I think sky's the limit for him. I'm, you don't like now. People want to throw Mahomes around, but that's actually who I think I saw him in the Senior Bowl, like doing like these like sidearm throws. Oh yeah, you. He's he's a, he's definitely uh, like an athlete, and yeah. he'd be fun to have. Yeah, Marco. Here's um, the thing. Here's the
0: thing about Drew Locke, and this is how I'll compare him a little bit. You go back to last year, and you saw Josh Allen coming out of Wyoming, right? And he was somebody that was an unbelievable athlete, had a big time arm, but he was really inaccurate and consistent. To me, Locke doesn't have quite the level of physical tools that Allen had, but he is a far more advanced thrower of the football in terms of the offenses he's run and the way he plays quarterback. So that would be the comparison I'd make from last year to this year with Locke and Allen. And Paul Schwartz has reported before that Allen was Shermer's favorite quarterback last year. So it makes Mm. sense to me that maybe he would like Drew Locke this year. Who knows?
7: All right. Um, Second question. Last year, I couldn't remember if – the Giants were picking two. If you guys had on – someone from cleveland before the draft since they were picking one uh the reason i'm asking at is the combine
0: guys, we did at the combine at we the did combine. but yeah yeah exactly
7: i would love like going into this year because six is is kind of hard to to size out what the other five teams are doing but specifically arizona i'm really curious about them about rosen and like you hear so much stuff about rosen and like oh he's not liked and his attitude and uh, I like, I really would love to like hear someone from there kind of validate those things and say like he's actually like a good kid or he's actually well, his teammates like them. I'd love to hear that if it, if there's an opportunity John and uh, Lance to get somebody on from there.
2: I mean, I don't think that that's the big issue with Josh Rosen. I just think it's well, Cliff Kingsbury liking Kyler Murray and obviously they had a horrendous offensive season last year and whether or not Rosen still has upside, but you know, Based on context, remember Rosen started off with one offensive coordinator. They fired him. Byron Leftwich, who was a first-time offensive coordinator, takes over, and Rosen didn't even start the first two games because Sam Bradford was the coordinator, and he had no offensive well, well, line in front yeah, of the two. Wait.
0: And Marco, Marco, by the way, one other so, thing, just a nugget, and it sounds like yeah. I'm promoting the other podcast, which I am, but I think it makes a lot of sense. I like, oh, like I, like I said, I, I I, I yeah. talked to Peter Schrager. It's going to be on the Big Blue Huddle podcast. Make sure you check it out. It's coming out in the next couple of days, and he said. At the Combine, he said, look, I think Steve Wilkes is comfortable with me saying this. He talked to Steve Wilkes off the record at the Combine, and he asked him, you know, what was it like coaching Josh Rosen, trying to, like, you know, lead the horse to water to say, oh, you know, he was a bit of a pain in the butt or whatever. And apparently, Wilkes had nothing but good things to say about him off the record after he was fired by the organization. So he had no reason to sugarcoat things and, and say things that weren't true. And Wilkes said that Rosen was a great teammate, great player, and he had no problems coaching him in Arizona. So hopefully that will give you a little bit of a nugget of no, what no. you're looking for.
7: It is. So here's just 10 seconds on my thought about Rosen then. So why, if the GM is still there, this is just what I'm curious about, if the GM is still there and they pick this quarterback, even if you think it's a smokescreen and they're not going to pick Murray, why even mess with the idea? Of that we possibly would draft another quarterback and mess with this quarterback who you picked last year if people possibly like him. That's what I don't get about it, because his attitude stuff has uh, always been out there as far as when he was in high school. So it's like, that's what I'm curious about. It's like, oh, if that's not the issue, is it injuries? I don't it, no, I, I don't think, think there's an issue with Murray, like Lance said.
0: Well, no, that's the thing. Oh, yeah. With ahead, Rosen. me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No,
2: I, I don't think, I think you're reading too much into it, Marco. I, I okay. think, okay. And, and first of all, even if it is BS, why would you fault Arizona for trying to drive up the value of the first overall pick. Let teams think that they're taking Murray and let them wow them with an offer to get them to drop off the number one overall pick. I don't think that's a problem. I think that's good executive decision-making. And Marco,
0: and and, and I I had the same argument you did. And when people were telling me this at the combine, I would go back and I'm like, guys, this doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand why a team would do this. And their argument was very simple. Steve Kime has had a lot of issues, right? And they've struggled. So maybe he's worried about his job security. And you might think, well, you know, then he's bailing on his first-round pick quarterback from last year, and, you know, that would reflect poorly on him. Yeah, sure. But at the same time, if Cliff Kingsbury fails, guess who's going to fail with him? The general manager. So he wants to give the coach the best tool possible to succeed playing the way he wants to play. And if his heart of hearts, he believed that guy is Kyler Murray and it gives this coach, who he's depending on to succeed, the best chance to win... That's why you move on from Rosen. It's not a shot at Rosen. There's no problems with Rosen. It's just that they think Murray is the better fit with Kingsbury.
2: Well, but what I'm also angling is the fact that even if they're content with Rosen, and this is just all a smokescreen, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a smokescreen because teams should think that you're using the first overall pick on Murray, and if they really want Murray, they have to now give you everything, including the kitchen sink.
0: And there are no indications that Rosen is on the trade block at all. Yeah. It's just pure Thank speculation. You. We got to run, Marco. Thank, that's you, all Thank
2: you, pal. it is. And by the way, just this whole quarterback debate and everything that Pat Shermer threw out, the KC model, people need to stop throwing out that the KC model is to find the next Patrick Mahomes. The KC model is a veteran quarterback mentoring a young quarterback. That's what the KC model is. It's not finding Patrick Mahomes. I
0: don't even want to use the word mentoring. How about young quarterback not starting his first year, playing behind the right, if you want to
2: do it like that. The, the reason right. being is because people act as if Kansas City is the only team in the history of the NFL. Correct, yeah. Brett Favre, yep. Aaron Rodgers, yep. Drew Brees, Phillip Rivers. Yep. I'm not going to bore you, but I'm so tired of hearing. they People hear the KC model and they're like, well, Alex Smith and the Chiefs won games consistently and made the playoffs. It's not to be taken literally. It's not duplicating KC. It's... Having a young quarterback and a veteran quarterback working together. Period. That's it. Thank you. And it's
0: something, by the way, the league basically has always done until yeah, the last 10 years when guys have been putting – I mean, look at Steve McNair back in the day. He sat behind for two years. Tons I mean, of guys have tons done Tons of done guys it. have. It, it, this exactly. is nothing new. It is not. We're earth-shattering. Lance, good stuff. Absolutely. Tomorrow we'll cover the Ohio State Buckeyes with our boy Bill Rabinowitz who we have on every year, and we'll touch on Dwayne Haskins and the bevy of Prospects coming out of Ohio State. For Lance Metal, I'm John Schmelk. We'll see you tomorrow at noon. Big Blue Kickoff Live on Giants.com. We'll see you then. Have a good one.